Welcome to the Quantum Growth Podcast, empowering financial advisors to build practices for the 21st century by providing insights and interviews on leadership, strategy, and practice management. Now here are your co-hosts, Shenandoah Connor and Barron's Hall of Fame top advisor, Jonathan Cutton. Welcome everyone to the Quantum Growth for Financial Advisors podcast. And we just keep chugging along here, bringing on some great guests and hopefully some great topics that will help you grow your own financial practice. I, of course, am Shenandoah Connor, and here with me, as always, is Barron's Hall of Fame advisor, Jonathan Cutton. Will you say hi? Yeah, so thanks, Shenandoah. Super excited uh, for today's guest, Mr. David Grau Jr. from Succession Resource Group. Uh, who I've known for many years and uh, of late, we've been doing a, a lot of work together and I've gotten to know David uh, quite well as uh, not just a super smart uh, business person who understands the landscape of wealth management and succession planning and all that kind of good stuff, but as a very good human being as well. So, uh, you know, I call David a friend these days, which I'm proud to do. So with that, Mr. Grau, maybe uh, you can say a quick hello to the audience. Yeah, hello. Welcome, everybody. And thanks so much, uh, Shenandoah and John, for having us on the podcast. We're really excited to join you. No, it was great to, to bring you on. I know we've all been talking about this a long time. And, and uh, you know, it's been an interesting year and a lot has happened. Um, and I know you've definitely seen a lot of that. But before we dive into that, I think it helps to give some context to everything by giving a little sense of, of your background and what it is you do. Not everybody may be familiar with you, even though you know you are out and very public in the industry, but if you'll give us a little background first, I think that's a good place to start. Yeah, you bet, Shandoy. It's uh, I'm sure everyone listening knows exactly who I am, <laughs> but for those of you who maybe uh, live under a rock, no, it, it's honestly, we know it's a really big, small industry, so we hope you have heard of us, heard of me, but for those of you that we haven't had the pleasure of interacting before, yeah, to John's point, I've been doing this a while, you know, more than some, less than others, uh, you know, just constantly trying to improve and get better like all of us, especially in 2020 and 2021. But I started uh, in the industry back in 2004. Uh, I served a couple of years in the U.S. Navy coming out of high school, went to college, and then I had an opportunity to uh, start working at FP Transitions, uh, where my father was one of the partners there. And it was you know, kind of a part-time gig while I was going to school. And I, I loved it. I loved the industry. I loved the work. And I found myself spending a whole bunch of hours working and also a whole bunch of hours going to school, which wasn't uh, terribly sustainable given that where I was going to school and working was about an hour and a half commute. So made the commitment, uh, doubled down, spent a better part of a decade at, uh, at FP, had a great time, you know, learned, evolved, tried to grow the M&A space in the industry at that point, because it was, and deals still happened back in the early 2000s, but not with the frequency that you're seeing in today's marketplace, where it's just kind of commonplace. And then in 2012, I, I left FP, again, had a great run there, learned a ton, they're still doing good work, but I left to start Succession Resource Group, really just honestly focused on providing turnkey solutions for advisors. It's, I mean, whether you run a small shop or a very you know large business like you run, Mr. Cutton, it, it, it's hard sometimes to tackle mergers and acquisitions and valuations. It's just such an all-consuming subject. And 
And there have been a lot of resources out there for the do-it-yourselfer, which all of us as entrepreneurs, we can solve any problem. We can figure anything out. Our role at this point now is just to try to make it easier. Yeah, no, I love it, David. Well said. And, um, you know, couldn't, couldn't agree more. Um, and I think most of our listeners likely have heard of you, made a great name for yourself in the industry. Um, you know, what would be helpful, David, because, you know, interestingly, you know, as I put my advisor cap on, um, I've known of you for a long time, knew who SRG was, knew who FP Transition was. But quite frankly, I didn't know all of the things that you did and um, from a consulting perspective and, you know, all that you do. So, you know, maybe you can just give a brief overview of the type of work that you do in the industry and, and uh, kind of how you operate. Yeah, you bet. And I appreciate you teeing that up because I think as John knows in our years of working together and knowing each other, I'm probably the worst salesperson you'll run into, which is why I'm not in charge of that here at Succession Resource Group. Um, I tell folks, we know, I know a lot about a little. We really just focus on understanding the independent advisor and dealing with the things that impact your equity. So the obvious solutions there, yeah, succession planning, mergers and acquisitions, but there's a lot of other sort of tangential services we provide to your point, John, that kind of fly under the radar until you need it. And then, you know, we're able to swoop in and help solve some problems for you. And that would cover subjects, again, certainly evaluation. It's a jumping off point for a lot of our clients uh, because it helps you make just, frankly, more informed decisions as a business owner. Yes, mission critical for acquisitions and succession planning. But it's just also great to make informed decisions as you run the business because honestly, everything you do on a day-to-day -day basis, month-to-month -month basis is impacting the value of your business, your enterprise. And so valuation is a great you know, starting place for a lot of folks. But some of the other things that we do, um, and again, John, I know you know this, but for the listeners, uh, we, we do list practices uh, and we don't charge to look at the listings. We don't sell memberships, things like that. That model's out there. Um, but we do list practices. And frankly, I got to tell you, as we get into our session today, we generally list you know, a handful of practices every month. And it's been picking up pace, frankly, every year since I've been doing this. But 2020 and 2021, I think, are going to be a banner year for this stuff. So a lot of listings. But we can also help folks with entity formation, kind of a you know foundational element where a lot of folks would say, well, how does that tie into succession exactly? Well, entity planning, your organizational planning, it really has a huge impact on where you end up and the choices you have when it comes to succession planning. It can also help you with acquisitions. And then, frankly, one of the things we've been doing a lot more lately is really in the employment space. And again, same thing, has a huge impact on succession, mergers and acquisitions, compensation plan design, how do you pay your people, setting up career tracks, you know, something, John, I know you've been a huge proponent of, and I've heard you talk about a couple of times on the podcast, which again, not directly succession related, but is so critical to acquisition, to succession planning. So we do a lot in helping people set up their employment contracts, comp plans, comp plan design, but everything we do really just kind of comes back to, if it impacts the value, the equity in your practice, we'll help you with it. Yeah, no, well, well said, David. And, you know, um, you're a pretty good salesman, by the way, by just <laughs> being really smart, which sometimes the best way to sell is to just know your stuff cold. And, uh, you know, one of the reasons I really enjoy working with you and your team um, 
is all the, the kind of ladder stuff that you just went through, right? And I think that's something for the listeners, you know, as you think about lots of advisors out there want to grow through mergers and acquisitions. Um, and I think lots of advisors don't take the steps to set their business up so they're actually ready for mergers and acquisitions uh, and they have the right systems in place, processes in place, to your point, David, agreements and career path uh, and all that, you know, that stuff that goes along with it. So um, I've had a, you know, a lot of success in having you help us through that for sure. And I, I and quite frankly, um, I just found out that you did it by accident. So I think it's a good <laughs> opportunity for you to kind of share uh, with the audience. So I appreciate you doing that. Now, you had talked about, um, and I'm seeing the same thing, um, that there being more and more M&A activity out there uh, these days. Uh, and our pipeline is as robust as it's been. Uh, maybe you could talk a little bit more about kind of what you're seeing and uh, you know, maybe why you think that's occurring in the marketplace. Yeah, I think our, our biggest and most noteworthy trend in, in 2020 when it comes to mergers and acquisitions is another one we've seen just kind of across the industry, and that is technology. It's It's been hoisted on the industry. You know, some folks, uh, I think, have been better prepared, were better prepared than others. But the industry as a whole, I mean, setting up and using a CRM system, you know, a year or two ago was pretty revolutionary if you really used it in your practice. And those are just things that when you back up from our industry are, are sort of the norm in most businesses. It's it's hard to operate without things like a CRM as your backbone and marketing automation software. But you know, even marketing automation software in our industry, that's probably another, you know, five or 10 years out before you're gonna see mass adoption. So technology is the big one. And what I think is really cool with the technology being forced upon us in this industry is, is what we're gonna see in 2021 and beyond as a result. So that that was a big one that I'm sure we can unpack because frankly, John, the seat you sit in, I, I know you deal with and work with technology a lot, frankly, more than most. So I'd love to hear your take on that as well. Um, ton of deals done in 2020, which I got to tell you was surprising, especially if you'd ask uh, the March or April version of me, because we, we were really busy coming out of 2019, set for a banner year in 2020. Uh, and it was a banner year, but you can imagine what that banner read. It, it wasn't a high watermark <laughs> in terms of revenue or anything else. Not a terrible year, but March and April and May, just all of a sudden, you still had deals getting done, but they were the ones that were near the finish line. Everything else just sort of hit the pause button because, well, apparently as an advisor, you have clients and a business to run, portfolios to rebalance. Um, but I was really surprised looking back on 2020 to say that despite how March and April and May was, and it didn't really pick up back up with mergers and acquisitions until maybe late June, early July, that we still ended up with almost the exact same amount of deals done as we had projected at the end of 2019. It was just kind of a barbell. It got squeezed into the beginning and the end of the year. No, that's great information. And that's kind of what we've been seeing too. I definitely pay attention to M&A activity and, and read the reports. And then same thing with the technology. Um, not, I'm not sure that everyone understands. I'm coming from outside the industry in. So when you're talking about, you know, everybody else does things this way. And I come in and like you said, the financial advisory industry has been slow to adopt a lot of the technology. And that's been my struggle is I've 
I've always been very heavy digital. So making sure the CRM's going, the marketing automation, I'm just surprised it's not as adopted as it has been because it is really just revolutionized all the other industries. And I do see that being something to continue. It's definitely something I've been prioritizing in my role um, and, and for sure trying to make sure we're getting all of our advisors on board. Um, I wouldn't say, tech, John supports technology, but he's not necessarily the tech <laughs> guy. So we, yeah, that, we joke with him. Def, definitely not. I like technology. It just doesn't- It just usually, doesn't like you. Yeah, that seems to be the trend. Yeah, so David, I mean, you talk about an uptick and, and you know, we concur with that. I mean, what are you seeing from a, a valuation perspective? And I mean, it's, it's amazing how, you know, all this money is flowing into the market from private equity and, you know, family office and low interest rates and high asset values because of the stock market. What are you seeing going on out there? I got to tell you, from the seat we sit in, looking back at all the deals we saw in 2020, and the nice thing is, through the partnerships we have with our different lending partners, for example, we have all the deals that we worked on, which really can be grouped into two categories. And this is excluding succession, partial book sales, all the kind of internal, slow incremental stuff, because those are so hard to compare one to another. They just they're all different. But when you look at just the you know third party transactions between a willing, willing buyer a willing seller. I got to tell you, I mean, multiples went up in 2020, not, not by a lot, which I don't think is a surprise probably to anybody listening, but the, the fact that they, they stayed flat or went up at all is noteworthy. What was also interesting, I thought, is when you look at the sort of shape of the bell curve on multiples paid, you've got small practices, which I define as you know under, let's say, 500,000 in annual revenue. Those practices saw a pretty high premium on their multiples that they received. I mean, not universally, but pretty much across the board, they sold at a bit of a premium over the industry average. Then you get to the, sort of that awkward middle spot of you know, 500,000 revenue to a million, and, and that multiple actually dipped down, but then steadily climbs as you start looking at bigger and bigger practices. And I would tell you, just having talked to the buyers and sellers, bigger isn't always better you know, from a value and multiple perspective, I've seen plenty of, you know, three, four, $10 million shops that are very poorly and inefficiently run. But generally with size comes mass adoption of technology, systems and processes, workflows. You might be able to afford someone who knows about marketing automation, you know, building a website and not just a canned website that, you know, we slap your name and logo on, you know, one that can actually be used for lead generation. You just don't see those in those smaller practices. But that space in the 500 to a million in annual revenue, it's, it's a little bigger than a lot of buyers can afford. You know, because if you figure million dollars in revenue, that's you know, two to three million as a purchase price, you know, safely and conservatively. Those small practices, if you're selling 20 million, 30 million in AUM, pretty much everyone can afford that, which means the pool of potential buyers is just huge you get a little bigger, well, now all of a sudden that pool shrinks. You know, they don't have the capital. They aren't necessarily able to buy on a whim that they need to be ready to make a million dollar acquisition, um, certainly of revenue, which is then another couple million dollars in debt. And then as you get to the bigger practices, yeah, you still have fewer buyers, but they tend to be more 
prepared, more well-heeled. They have their stuff down pat and, and they can make an acquisition or two per year. So it's really interesting to see. I think the closing comment I'll make here and then I'll turn the mic back over to you is I think practices are still undervalued. And I know, John, you've been on the buy side, so you probably want to tell all the sellers listening today, you know, earmuffs. Yeah, <laughs> uh, but I got to tell you, practices... Don't ruin it for us. <laughs> still undervalued. And I say that for one simple reason, and that is I have seen no other industry where you can go out, you can find a business, you know, that you have a good fit with, but you can buy that business, put no personal capital in, finance that transaction over, let's say, 10 years and be cash flow positive day one, year one, year two, year three through 10. And that's at the, you know, I think our industry average multiple we finished up last year was 2.77 on the recurring. And that still leads to positive cash flow every single year with no personal capital brought to the table. That just doesn't happen in any other industry. Yeah, so Shenandoah, we could edit out that little remark. That they, <laughs> no problem. I'll have to so, see if we could do that, but I don't yeah. think so. <laughs> so. I'll tell you what, David. I'm I'm self-professed famous for hitting people with two questions at a time. Oh, you I know. provoke like six in my brain, <laughs> but I, I'm going to try to do one at a time the best I can. So, uh, you hit a bunch of points there that I think are really important, and I and I I actually completely agree uh, that practices are undervalued and. Uh, I, I believe that um, you, as you see, and I would be really interested in your thought process on this, right? As you see kind of, uh, like I said, private investors and more and more banks getting involved in lending in the financial services space. I remember, um, you know, probably less than 10 years ago, I mean, there was no such thing as writing an upfront check through a bank. It was deals were right. done on earnouts, really. So, I also know, David, that you created an organization, I think called Lending Well as well, right? So yep. um, obviously you're probably seeing some of the same thing with banks flooding in. So I wanted to hit you with with two questions, I guess. One, maybe you could just tell us a little bit about Lending Well, because quite frankly, I know you have it. We haven't talked about it. I don't know much, much about it and I'd like to learn about it. Uh, and then the second piece is, you know, I've heard a theory out there and I think it's a good one that, as banks continue to make financing right readily available, and because interest rates are so low, it stands to reason that valuations are very high right now um, and rising because money's cheap, accessible, and some of these loans are you know ten-year amortization. Uh, I've heard uh, in some of these cases. So I think I hit you with three questions in there. You can answer all some, whatever you'd like. <laughs> Well, fortunately, I know, uh, A, you're known for this, which B also means Shenandoah has probably kept notes in case I miss any one of them. So Yeah, I try. <laughs> Sometimes <laughs> it's hard to keep up. <laughs> so on the first one, which really, you know, lending well helps answer as a springboard the second part of your question, and that is financing in our industry, to your point, John, you're spot on. You know, I go back to when I started Succession Resource Group back in 2012, I, I thought I knew a lot about structuring deals. And I did. The problem was in 2012, the industry sort of shifted from what I had been doing for the better part of a decade. You buy a business, you put down some personal capital, maybe 10 or 20%, that's your skin in the game. Seller finances the balance on a combination of either a promissory note or an earnout. But I mean, it was very variable. That's how deals got done. Every now and then we get somebody who said, oh, you know, I got a local bank, great relationship with, they're going to provide some capital. And I'd say, oh yeah, okay. 
they would never get the capital because eventually they get to underwriting and realize as an advisor, you don't have any tangible collateral. And the problem is you know, these banks are FDIC insured. Providing uncollateralized loans is not something they can do a lot of. So there just wasn't a lot of bank financing, but 2012, 2013, we had, I think at that point, one industry lender, uh, one of your previous guests, John uh, Dustin from PPC Loans, who I was working with you know, pre-Great Recession uh, when they had first really committed to the space and then promptly exited it, you know, 08, 09 for obvious reasons. But they came back in a big way in 2012, really committed to the space. But at that point, lending was pretty easy. Either you do seller financing or you use PPC. It was plan A and plan B. And then Live Oak entered the space. And then a handful of other lenders entered the space in quick succession because they realized, you know, it's better than tangible collateral, recurring revenue. And that's something that, again, very unique to our industry. You know, whether, and I know, John, you, you work a ton like I do, but not all advisors do. In fact, I'm going to do a study at one point. The amount of emails that our marketing team sends out that we get out of office responses back on, I'm pretty sure at any given moment in our industry, conservatively, at least a quarter of the advisors are not at their desk. No, I agree. I have to deal <laughs> with those out of offices as, as the marketing person. So I feel that one. <laughs> that's it. That hit me at my core. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll, we'll come back to that one because I'd be curious to know yeah, at any given time, where are advisors at and how many are sitting at their desks uh, virtually or, or physically? But over time, effectively, we went from having you know really deep knowledge about the one or two industry lenders to having a pretty good knowledge about the five or six to having a cursory knowledge of the dozen that had committed to the industry. And we just made it our mission in 2019 to make sure we knew everything we could know about these banks that we were working with. But you know, each deal was a little different. So we created this massive spreadsheet with, with all of their loan parameters, loan covenants, because it's nothing like getting a mortgage. With a mortgage, you go shop. If you have the wherewithal to talk to 12 different banks, you're shopping rate in a mortgage. That's it. It's a 15 or 30 year mortgage. I mean, it's not rocket science. When you start shopping for a loan in the commercial lending space to buy an advisory business, I mean, yeah, don't get me wrong. We're all shopping right to some degree, but in reality, what you should be looking at are the things that they don't tell you. It's all of their various loan covenants, the conditions, and frankly, just which loan, which deal type fits best in their credit box. And the challenge is that we would see historically Advisors would go find through Google or Yahoo, whatever Bing, you know, search engine they might be using, or their broker dealer would provide a recommendation or two. They would end up with a really good, capable lender, but not good and capable for the type of deal they were doing. And so it was just pounding a square block and a round hole. But with these banks, they want to help you get the deal done. That you know, this isn't Macy's referring to gimbals. You know, you'd love to say that that stuff happens, but that's in the movies. Um, some of the industry lenders are better than others, but for the most part, advisors just sometimes get stuck working with a bank that feels like it's just not a good fit. And most of the time, the answer is it's not. So long answer for a short question. Lending well really is just about trying to help advisors answer a couple of simple questions so you can get connected with the right lender. Because frankly, selfishly, it just makes our job helping you put the deal together so much easier if you've got the right resource alongside you. No, awesome, uh, awesome info, and I think uh, very insightful for you to see kind of where the industry was going with the lenders, and to be able to put together 
kind of a, it sounds like a one-stop shop, right? Where you can kind of come in and learn about what's the right fit for each deal because they're all different. Um, I think you hit one of my three questions, by the way. So I'll give you number two. I actually remembered it, which is rare for me. Um, you know, from a valuation perspective, we talked about valuations rising. I mean, do you do you believe that that is due to more access of capital, like we were talking to from banks and you know some of the PE shops out there and family office type uh, investors, uh, or do you think it has more to do just with the industry? Kind of maturing and and you know folks uh, understanding kind of what what the financial services industry is all about and as you referenced the you know the cash flow uh, on a recurring basis that businesses create. I'm going to have to go with both because you're spot on, John. I mean, in general, when you look at the bank financing, its impact on multiples, the bank finance deals almost always have a slightly higher multiple over the industry average. Reason for that is, as you articulated, it, it's about cash flow. And really, I don't know if any of our listeners or if you've had experience, you know, buying real estate in Mexico, for example. You know how much bank financing is available for a mortgage in Mexico? Not a lot. When you do deals down there and you buy a home, vacation, or you know, primary residence, you do it on generally a land sale contract. You do seller financing. Well, you think a seller is going to provide you a 30-year mortgage? Not a chance. So you end up with property values there being compressed. Your purchasing power is just greatly diminished. That's where our industry was for most of the 2000s. You want to get a deal done, you better either A, have the capital or B, a seller willing to finance it. But you, I mean, you know this, John, from the deals you've done, whether it was a promissory note or an earnout, they'd finance it begrudgingly over maybe three to five years. When you buy a business, you factor in overhead, you factor in debt service, and then, oh yeah, taxes. For a long time, I mean, those businesses had to grow or you were eating ramen noodles. You know, and we're here in Portland, we, we got really expensive ramen. I'm talking like the 10 for a dollar ramen. It just, it did not cash flow. I actually like ramen noodles. I, I don't know why people- my wife. Yeah. I've never had ten dollar ramen noodles though, so I'm I'm gonna I have an expectation now. Like I don't know what that tastes like. <laughs> Bringing me back to my college days, ramen noodles were not so bad. Um, no, and I and I think uh, I think we're in agreement on that, David. I think you're absolutely right. Uh, and uh, yeah, I I know some folks in the industry who thinks value valuations. The industry saying, wow, you know, buying practices is so expensive right now, all time high valuations, et cetera. And I think there are some folks out there and I, I'm a believer of it that think that they're still too low. And it sounds like you might might feel that way also. So and kind of interesting. You know, on that note, when when you think about David, um, you know, I get asked from advisors a lot that we coach uh, and even sometimes we'll get a quick note from the podcast uh, for advisors who have been looking and looking and looking to purchase a practice or get involved in a merger and they've had no luck. Right. And I'd just be curious, I've got to assume you've been involved in hundreds, if not thousands of transactions in one way or another. If you're an advisor out there, you know, looking to acquire a practice, what do you find kind of the mistakes are that advisors make? What, what makes a good buyer? What makes a bad buyer? Because I'm sure you've seen some deals blow up over, over the years. Well, this will be a good plug for you to, John, maybe share some of your experience as well, because I got to tell you, 
Succession, believe it or not, is probably the best thing that you can do for those of you looking to grow through acquisition. You know, sounds counterintuitive, but by that, I mean, succession planning, it's not about selling the business. I mean, I think we've all got that in common. You know, we're all leaving this industry at some point, horizontally or vertically, it's, it's coming. But succession really is a concept and a strategy is more about how, how do you build a business that doesn't need you? that it can run without you because someday it will not have you. And is there a business that will continue to exist? Well, the beauty of it is if you spend the time internally to get your own house in order, again, some of the stuff I, I know I've heard on this podcast before, John, career tracks. I mean, make sure you've got the right people in the right place at the right time and you have capacity. I mean, some of these really little things that most folks, when you ask, you know, how can you be more successful with acquisition, you know, sign up for all the deal-making websites, you know, put together your marketing plan. That's phase two. Phase one is, are you ready? Because if you're not ready, if you're successful with your marketing efforts, you're going to play the bridesmaid's role a whole bunch of times. And that's going to get really, really frustrating. So number one, just get your own house in order. Make sure you build something sexy. And I'm just going to say, you want something that somebody wants to sell to. Number two is, Make sure you have the capacity because either the seller is going to ask you directly or they're going to be asking leading questions because they want to know, do you have the ability to deliver service to my clients like I have delivered? And of course, the way that they've delivered it is obviously the best way. And you as a buyer will nod your head and say yes, for sure, no matter how they delivered service. You can upgrade and change things later, but you got to make sure you show that you have the capacity. Not too much, not just sitting around twiddling your thumbs with your $10 million book of business but that you have the ability to bring on, I think we had 150 something households was the average sold last year. Do you have the ability to bring on 150, 160 households in 90 days? I mean, talk about pressure testing your systems, your people. I mean, that's either gonna go really, really well or not so well. So getting your own house in order, but then the last one is just commit. Honestly, if you wanna grow through acquisition, the deals are out there. I mean, we talked to two groupings of buyers, one grouping that calls and complains that there's no deals, they've been looking for years. And then the other grouping is, well, like you, calling about the next deal and the next deal. The biggest difference is our, our serial acquirers, those ones that buy businesses you know, every year, they buy them sometimes multiple in a year, they've just committed the time and effort, but it goes back to succession. You've got to have your team in place. You've got to have a business where you can be sort of the, the CEO from time to time and commit to going out and finding deals. But with the average advisor now 55 years old, our average sellers in their early 60s, those deals are out there. They're just not waving a white flag. They're not gonna make it easy on you. Yeah, couldn't, couldn't agree more. Well said. You know, and I, I think as well, when I think about buyers, I mean, one of the things that I would add as well is, you know, I think sometimes buyers lose sight that a seller, it's their first and probably only, hopefully, right, opportunity to sell their business. And, you know, I've been involved in scenarios where, you know, there was a deal intact. I found about it, found out about it, I should say, after the fact. Um, and then, you know, just to see that the deal didn't go through over the buyer, as an example, not wanting to, you know, agree to some reasonable ask from the seller, right? Um, you know, whether it was economic or something around attrition or uh, whatever it may be. And that would be my advice is, 
if you could be a slightly more kind of laid back buyer and understand that the other human that you're dealing with spent, you know, 25, 30, 40 years or, or longer building their life's work. And, you know, they deserve to get proper, you know, monetization and protections to actually buy the business. I feel like sometimes buyers are just super unrealistic as to what is reasonable. When I put that one sort of back to you real quick, John, because I know you've dealt with this before because I've, I've seen it and I'm sure there's other times where I haven't seen it that you've had to navigate it. You can expect as a buyer, every seller is going to be unreasonable about something. It's their baby. It's their business, like you mentioned. So the fact that they're going to be unreasonable with their expectations, of course they are. Someday when you sell your business listening today, you're going to be unreasonable. You won't think you are at the time but you're going to be unreasonable. John, how do you navigate that, you know, without blowing up the deal or making somebody feel like you don't see the value in what they've built? Yeah, no, I like it. I like being interviewed. Thank you, David. <laughs> uh, you know what? I, I think, um, I think you have to just check your ego sometimes. And, you know, it's, it's almost like, um, you know, everything in life, whether it be trying to sell your house and, you know, my house is, I, I love my wallpaper. It uh, doesn't mean the buyer is going to love the wallpaper my wife and I picked out, right? Um, and, you know, when you sell a house, I sold a house once and I hated having people come in and talk about, we're going to change this and I don't like that color, honey, and uh, et cetera. So I think you have to actually look at it, you know, and put your CEO hat. You used the word kind of CEO before uh, a little bit and look at not the, the, not what's going to be in that agreement, right, necessarily, uh, and of course, it needs to protect everyone, but you have to look at it and go, what what will this do for my business and my career and the people in the organization in three years, five years, 10 years, 20 years down the road, if you're, you're young enough to be around for that long uh, as an acquirer. So check the ego um, and realize that have a little empathy and compassion for the other person on the other side of the table, knowing that they're going to be highly emotional uh, for sure would be the way that I would answer that. You know, and David, on that note, um, I'll hit you on the other end of the scenario as well, which is, you know, what do you see are the real drivers of equity value, right? You, you talked about some of them already, but if you're a seller or, you know, someone nearing uh, that age, what should you be focusing on to ensure that you're gonna maximize, you know, the, the equity value of your practice? Great question, and John, and, and one that gets asked in a couple of different ways from time to time, but you're you're spot on. I mean, when you think about the equity, the value that you have in your practice, it it is just like a home in your example, John, because whether you know it or not, whether you plan to sell your home or not, you know, if, if everyone around you remodeled their kitchen this year, you may say, well, my value should be the same. I, I didn't do anything better or worse. Well, yeah, but the market around you has shifted. And so that couldn't be more true in our industry. So key drivers of growth that, that I would focus on, number one is sort of the high level recommendation that I talked about. The most valuable businesses, yeah, recurring revenue is important. Profitability is important. I'd be remiss if I didn't mention them, but they're sort of, they're table stakes. But again, the most valuable businesses that we see out there are the ones that don't need you. I mean, it's an aspiration. Don't get me wrong. It's like going into somebody's office who says they're paperless. You know what you see? You see some paper. I mean, but it's the aspiration of going paperless. It's the aspiration of trying to build a business that doesn't need you. That again, gets back to 
career tracks, the people, the processes, I mean, those are the ones that are the most valuable. They grow the fastest. They're the most efficient. But a few other just quick hitters. I mean, growth is a big one, especially when you contemplate buying a practice. I mean, you're talking to someone who's selling. They're going to be generally in their 60s, maybe a little older, occasionally a little younger. Well, generally, when you're 65 and selling your business, at least what we've seen, and you can see this on our listings because you know, there's a lot of data there. Most of the folks they're selling today, they retired four or five years ago. They just sort of retired in place. Great business, good recurring income stream. The upside to the recurring revenue is the banks love the industry. It's a great way to build a business. The downside to it is it gets really easy to coast in the latter part of your career. And again, go into it with eyes wide open. If that's what you choose to do, more power to you. But don't be surprised when you don't get the premium value you were hoping for because you're thinking about your practice five years ago when you were growing at 10, 15% per year. We look at your business now and you grew by 3% last year. Well, how, how'd the market do on the whole last year? Well, effectively you shrank. So it's, it's things like that, you know, the growth, but also track just basic metrics. What's your revenue per client? What's your asset per client? What's your client service model? Do you deliver service profitably to your A clients, your B clients, your C clients, your D clients? Those are all such mission critical things to monitor, whether you're selling or buying or just running a business, you got to keep an eye on these things because it's, I think it was Peter Drucker, this great management consultant. He's got so many quotes out there. I hope I'm as quotable, you know, when someday I pass, but he's a great, a great quote that I love for evaluation. And that is what's measured improves. Love that. Yes. That should be in a bumper sticker on every financial advisor or business person's right? car. Um, yeah, I think I think uh, great, great information in there as usual. Um, you know, when you when you think about how to drive valuation, and I think what you had said around um, that advisor who you know probably should have retired five years ago, that's kind of coasting along. Um, you know, we've acquired some practices from folks like that, and you know, it's interesting. They likely could have actually uh, decided to sell their business while it was in that kind of you know, growth stage and they had that eight or 10% CAGR um, compound annual growth rate and um, probably gotten a better value for it, right? Uh, and not had to hang on for those last five years uh, as well. And you know, David, I, we're, we're almost out of time here and sadly, I'm like just getting started. So we might have to have you on again. I'm really enjoying our conversation. Um, but you know, one other thing I wanted to hit with you which I'm always shocked at. And I don't know if you know the statistics or just even rough statistics on it. But, um, you know, I know part of what you do, um, and I think the industry needs a lot more of it, is help advisors with buy sells and, you know, death disability and making sure that they're protecting their assets. So, you know, kind of the shoemakers, kids without the shoes, you know, where we're advisors, we help clients plan. Uh, for many of us, if not most of us, our practices are our largest asset, yet I keep reading statistics that, you know, so, so few advisors actually have properly put plans in place uh, for you know, scenarios like that. Maybe you could talk to that a bit for us. Yes, yeah, and we've got data both from the valuation work we do, because we do, you know, a couple hundred valuations every single year, which gives us a really, you know, deep dive into each of those businesses. But we also do, you know, surveys, we do poll questions on our webinars, so a lot of different, you know, points to reference. And I got to tell you, from an industry perspective, we 
are most certainly the shoemaker's kids with no shoes. I mean, it's you spend a lot of time focusing on this subject matter with your clients, but as an industry, we, we've not done well. Um, I, th I think the consistent answer is about 17% of advisors say they have a succession plan, but I got to tell you, I haven't talked to all 17% of them, but I've talked to enough of them to know when they say they have a succession plan, what they really mean is they have a succession strategy that has been ruminating in the back of their mind. They probably haven't told anybody about it, but they have an idea. If you said, hey, what are you going to do when you retire? They've got some idea, but I mean, as an industry, you got to do better. I mean, we need, if nothing else, just to make sure that there's not a huge brain drain on our industry, because that's the scariest part that I see. You know, when you look at the compounded annual growth rate across all of the different channels in our industry over the last 10 years, our industry is shrinking. I mean, which is not something you can easily reverse. And the problem is when most advisors decide to retire and exit within 12 to 18 months, can you transition a book of business in 12 to 18 months? Yeah, you bet. I mean, I've seen you do it, John, a dozen times. Can, can you, if John, if you retired and we phased you out over 12 to 18 months, can we unpack everything you've learned about the industry, your clients, products, the wholesalers in your local market? Can you do that in 12 to 18 months? Not a chance. Totally agree. Yeah, no, uh, well said. And, and I just want to repeat, you said 17%, one seven, not 70%, 70, correct? 17. I wish and I hope someday we get to say 70%, uh, but no, yeah, at this point, 17%. And I'm quoting the highest of the figures that, that we have seen. Yeah, that's scary. I mean, it really is scary. And you know what? Um, I see it. I mean, you, yeah. you just see it and... Um, you know, I mean, not to, not to, I mean, actually we probably should scare some of our listeners. I was involved in two acquisitions in the last two years of advisors who passed away without anything in place. And these were, um, you know, luckily for them and, and uh, you know, and some broker dealers, uh, they actually have a plan in place to help advisors through that who didn't actually plan, but it's, it's scary uh, that advisors don't plan for that. Uh, for sure. So, you know, David, what I'd like to do is just, um, you know, first of all, I just want to say um, you're awesome. You're, you're fun to talk to. And um, what I love about working with you is I'll do a little shameless selling for you. Cause I don't know. I, I know you don't like to sell yourself is the deeper you dig, the more I find, you know, uh, about the industry and you're really a student of the industry uh, and have a very good uh, way of calmly and succinctly kind of talking through options uh, and helping people make good decisions. So uh, I mean that, uh, you know, with all sincerity. Um, so I do want to thank you for, you know, for being our guest. I think it was super valuable. Is there anything that Shenandoah and I didn't ask you um, that you might think maybe we missed or that you might want to share as a, as a good nugget? And, and if not, that's okay as well. Yeah, I mean, as you might guess, John, I mean, like you said earlier, there's just there's so much we could unpack here. I mean, we'd have to pivot to sort of the, the Joe Rogan format and spend you know half a day talking together because um, it really is. There's just so much around this subject. And as an industry, you know, whether you like it or not, you know, you're going to deal with mergers and acquisitions. I mean, if you want to keep pace with your peers, if you want to make sure you build a business that can be there to serve your clients and their children and their grandchildren, 
mean, that's all about succession planning. It's just starting with the end in mind. So the only other thing you, you didn't bring up, mainly because I think we just didn't have time. So I'll, again, I'll try to keep it brief, is what to expect in 2021. And, and I'm going to compartmentalize that, leave politics, religion, all the other stuff out of it as it pertains to mergers and acquisitions. And I got to tell you, if you're, if you're a buyer, be ready because between tax rates going up, Reg BI, I mean, compliance headaches in general increasing, increasing use of technology. And if you're a 65 year old advisor and you're having to do Zoom meetings now, I've seen some who have gotten better at it, but I have a lot of folks that are, we'll just say talking to the wrong camera. <laughs> um, so there's just a lot of things that I can tell you are pushing a lot of folks who built a great business, great lifestyle practice, they aren't sure when they want to retire, but they know it's in the next couple of years. If they're thinking about retiring in the next, call it two to five years, you're going to see a whole bunch of those folks. I say pull the ripcord and look for an exit this year. But in reality, it's like a lot of the deals that you've done, I think, in the past, John, where they sell today. But if I called, they're still there three years from now. You're going to see a lot more of those deals. Tricky to navigate because you literally have two cooks in the kitchen but they're doable. And if, if you can be ready as a buyer, there's going to be some chances for some real quantum growth here in 2021. Oh, look at that. Look at him. I like See, that. That was a good job. We didn't even pay you for that. That's yes. good. I'm real <laughs> professional. I like that. And, you know, I'll just, I'll make my last remarks and then Shen, I'll, I'll send it over to you to, uh, to kind of wrap it up, but uh, couldn't agree more with what you said, David. It's, it's like kind of that perfect storm and, you know, I think the industry has been talking about it for years, the aging population, less and less advisors in the industry, the shrinking industry. Uh, you add low interest rates, bank financing, you know, markets at all time highs, COVID, people being able to reflect on, you know, what's important to them. Uh, and then this adaption, adaption to technology, uh, you know, five or 10 years quicker than we ever would have done it without COVID. And I think, uh, I think you could just see that momentum building. And I think you're absolutely right. What we're seeing is more of these sell and stays, right? Hey, I'm ready to go, you know, but I'm not really ready to go. I want to, I want to monetize my equity, uh, but I don't want to be out of this because I want to stay busy and love what I do. I just don't want the headache. So we're seeing a lot of that. And, um, you know, there's a, for, for the right advisors out there looking to grow, uh, there's lots of opportunity to do so. So it's definitely an exciting time. So David, thanks again. You're awesome. And Shenandoah, I'll send it on over to you. Yeah, absolutely. And like John said, lots of great tech takeaways through here. Definitely. I think the big overarching one, be prepared and also practice what you preach, protect your practice and just put things in place. So then that way you can grow and, and do it well and do it in a meaningful way. Um, but before we wrap up, I'm sure people are going to want to contact you or get connected with you. How can they go about doing that, David? You, you bet. So if you want to know just general information, uh, whether it is about you know, services that we talked about today or looking at listings, practices for sale, kind of the exciting stuff, you can just check out uh, it's www.successionresource.com. Uh, all the information is there. It's available, including looking at the listings and details about them. You heard me mention earlier, if you need help with financing, just getting connected with the right lender. Uh, another item I forgot to mention on, on lending well is the user reviews. Our favorite thing about you know shopping on Amazon, for example, is I can see reviews. That's why I, you know, before I buy anything, I check there, even if I go buy it at Best Buy. 
Um, we've incorporated that into lending well, so you can at the very least also double check who you're working with, uh, see if other folks have had a good or bad experience with them. Uh, that's lending-well.com. Aside from that, you know, follow us on LinkedIn, me, our company, as you know, John and Shenandoah, like you, uh, we're pretty prolific in just pushing our content out through there. So you can't miss webinars, uh, statistics that we release because we do it all through social media. Uh, and all of our contact information is on the website as well, but they can always email us at uh, info at successionresourcegroup.com. Great. And I will put all of those in the show notes in case you didn't catch them all. Um, but I also know that David, you pop up in a lot of the publications too. So I'm sure that they, if they don't know you, they're going to be able to find you pretty easily. You're not hard to find. Uh, well, thank you once again for joining us. Great episode. Very excited um, to get feedback on this one. I'm sure we're going to hear lots of great things from our audience. Um, and, and to our audience, if you have somebody that you think would be a great guest, please submit them. We are looking for more guests. We, we are booked out for the next couple months, but we are always looking for industry experts and as well as advisors who have a great um, story to tell about how they've achieved quantum growth in their own practice. So feel free to contact us and make sure that you subscribe and follow and stay tuned for our next episode next week. Thank you for listening to today's episode. You can find the episode show notes and subscribe for updates by visiting cuttonconsultinggroup.com forward slash podcast. Make sure to subscribe and download the episodes on your favorite podcast app, and we'll see you next week.